Blog Talk Radio. This is KWOD Radio, and this is Patty Holstrand, and we're here again live at uh, KWOD Radio. How are you guys doing this afternoon? We're on live with Michael Bradley, and Michael's got a, a lot of cool things that he's got going on, and uh, the thing is, he's coming from corporate America, and he is now a, not a fiction author of a steampunk so you know he's uh, he's one of those that also started in his middle age, started writing, and is now an author of several books, The Traveler's Club and The Ghost Ship is his first book. And so we'd like to welcome Michael Bradley. Are you there, Michael? Hello, everybody. How you doing? Oh, pretty good. Been a pretty good day, so can't complain. <laughs> well, you're here, and it's hot here, because you're in Arizona, so you're an Arizona yeah. author. And where well, are you, you originally from? something when it's hot, so I figured I might as well write, you know, <laughs> something indoors. Ah, okay. So where are you from originally? Well, I grew up uh, on the coast of California. Uh, I was born in Pismo Beach, and then I spent some time in the U.S. military, and I was lucky enough to be assigned to uh, Hawaii the entire time. So I lived in Hawaii for six years. And uh, then I came out here to Arizona. So I can honestly say that this is the farthest east I've lived, and it's also the coldest winters. Uh, people were making fun of me the first time I was out here, and it was 50 degrees, and I was shaking like a leaf. So uh, <laughs> I'm used to the uh, beach where it's 70 all the time. So. Ah, so it's kind of steady weather where you're from then. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not used to there being a, a winter at all. So I do okay with the heat for the most part here. Uh, when most most people are hot, it doesn't bother me too much. That sounds good. Uh, tell us about how you got involved with writing. If you've been doing this for a long time, I mean, I said that you were just started uh, publishing, but have you been writing for a long time? Yeah, I've always wanted to be a writer ever since I was a little kid. Um, and... All I ever heard, you know, when growing up, when you say, oh, I want to be a writer, is, well, what are you going to do for a living? So even back then, there was a lot of negativity amongst people about uh, how much money you could make uh, as an author. Uh, and so people view it kind of more as a large kind of profession. And uh, so I really got discouraged. And uh, I was blessed with a high IQ, so they were all, there was a lot of pressure from uh, school counselors and everything to, either, you know, go into making money or, to, you know, you've got to cure cancer or what have you. So, unfortunately, I, I caved into a lot of pressure and uh, went into uh, science and uh, I had a degree in electronic engineering and learned computer science and learned economics. And so, it's been kind of a science and uh, finance background for me. And it was really not until middle age that I was able to shake off what people told me when I was a child and say, you know, I want to be a writer my whole life. Everybody who reads the things they write says that they're really good. Um, I'm I'm going to be a writer. So last April 1st, I thought it was apropos to do an April Fool's Day. I quit my 
CEO job. That's good. And I was the CEO of the healthcare company. And I always lived beneath my means, so I mean, I saved up uh, a lot of money and paid off all my bills, and so I don't really need to work uh, to pay my bills, which is kind of a good place to be. So I kind of retired early mm-hmm. at 47. Everybody was kind of shocked, and since then I've been writing, and, um, you know, I was having problems with high blood pressure, it's gone. Uh, I had uh, problems with my heartbeat, it's gone. I've lost 75 pounds. Um, I wow. had 30 or 40 to go, but I, I just couldn't be doing better. I mean, following my dream has really, you know, been a life changer for me. And it's amazing to me how many people say, oh, we wish we could do the same thing you could. And I'm like, well, you, you can. I mean, you, so you just choose to have fewer things and, and do what you really care about. And I had a troubled childhood where I was abused a lot. Uh, my father was really abusive. He died when I was 15. And my mother abandoned me at 16, so I kind of raised myself. But uh, books were always an escapism for me. They were a way that I could get away from what was not a happy life. And I could read something like Jules Verne or H.G. Wells and, and dream about going on adventures where the good people won or the bad people lost. And um, it was it was really escapism for me. And so that's really what I try to bring to my writing. I'm not I'm not trying to be, you know, a grandiose poet or Hemingway or be thought of as one of the great writers. I, I want people who read my books to say, well, I really enjoyed that. You know, something to help them get to sleep at night where they can have good dreams, you know, something so that if they've had a bad day, they can curl up with a glass of wine in one of my books and, and get that same escape and that same pleasure that I've always got from reading. Well, it's kind of funny that, you know, just one reason I asked people, you know, kind of what you you already answered that question, uh, what they were reading when they were younger. And it does seem to really correlate to what you write. And you you had mentioned Jules Verne, and uh, he really is the original steampunk writer. Yeah, it's funny <laughs> because at the time that Jules Verne and H.G. Wallace were writing, it wasn't really steampunk, so it was just regular science fiction for them right. because they were actually living at the time. So they were they were thinking about science fiction in 1880, but they were actually living there. And in fact, it was funny. I just recently read uh, Senator Arthur Conan Doyle's work on Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. And, and I was actually cursing, like, damn, how does he know these stuff? Like, he, how does he know the nickname for a shoeshine boy in London? And I'm like, crap, he lived then, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have to do all this research on, on the Internet for, like, weeks sometimes to come up with background. Uh, but they actually lived back then. But, yeah, I, I I didn't even know there was a term steampunk when I started writing. It's just what I enjoy writing. It was a more innocent time when um, we didn't know what the world was. You know, Africa, all there was was a coastline on the map. Nobody knew it was there. Uh, Nobody knew really what it was in America. We were just in a time where we had just finished the Transcontinental Railroad in 1867 to 1876 is when it was built. So it it was a time of exploration and innocence that we've kind of lost right now. And... Some some of the uh, heavy science fiction out there right now, you actually feel depressed after you've read it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I I still like the the old science fiction where, you know, you yeah. think of J.R.R. Tolkien where the hobbits win against you know odds, you know. And that's the type of of writing I like to do is where people feel good afterwards. They don't feel down or, 
you know, life sucks, you know, they're like, ah, that was a really cool adventure. I'm glad the good guys won. Yeah, definitely. We we went to a time where, you know, good guys were good guys and, and uh, you know, they had to, you know, save the women and, and uh, you know, slay the dragon. So, <laughs> so well, it's... Uh, I, think, I think you're right. I mean, in society in general, I think men have lost part of their role, you know. Um, it's really good that women are liberated. And I always make sure that I have strong female characters as well, whether it's historically oh, yeah. accurate or not. But I think that the concept of a strong man, you know, that, that we've had, you know, a John Wayne or a, a Clint Eastwood or a Burt Lancaster, we're, we're missing those types of characters nowadays in our literature. Uh, there's there's not a lot of men that are not introspective, you know. And and that's the difference is, you know, we grew up, because uh, you and I are about the same age, and uh, we both grew up with those again, those actors and and those movies and and those books, you know, those those authors, and people who are growing up now are growing up with the with you know the uh, you know more gritty uh, television shows and and you know as they have to their their future is going to be skewed because of that because they're not enjoying the same things that we did. So they're all different, but um, we are what we what we watch and what we do. <laughs> well, I definitely uh, agree. You know, we just had a book signing up at Payson that we, you and I were together at, and I had a seven and nine year old girl come up to, to read the book, and I felt good that I could sell it to them. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's just not true for a lot of authors nowadays. You know, I have a few swear words in there, but you know, uh, for the most part. I keep uh, my stuff PG or PG-13 just so that it can be, you know, some family fun, um, something that, you know, if the kid picks up to me, they won't be shocked by. Uh, that doesn't mean that there's not, like, you know, I, I have, obviously, uh, aliens, zombies, things like that. There's fights, people get killed. So, you know, it, it's not tame. Right, I mean, right. But it's, well, it's not PG, but... That, you know, would, Unnecessarily give nightmares to a little kid if they if they read it. Well, as you said, uh, PG thirteen. Uh, you know that technically, you know, it has language in it. It's going to have uh, and it's going to have you know killing. I mean, that's life. But you exactly. know, I think that that the generation that is reading these things now, you know, they're used to that now. You know, television yep. brought brought the war into their home, and uh, the horrors of war, and and you know we. They're seeing a lot more of that than we did. I think one thing, too, is that the younger generation doesn't have clear wars, you know. Uh, they don't know why we're in Afghanistan for sure or Iraq. And, you know, they might argue points about terrorism or whatever. But, you know, we have a, young, a lot of young people, and I think 2 million people who have served in the Gulf War, one or two in some capacity. Uh, mm. So they fought a war there in Europe, whereas, you know, we came back... Um, uh, when we were kids, people were coming back from World War II or Korea, and it was, you know, as a known aggressor, you know. I mean, the mm-hmm. Nazis and the Japanese were evil, and we were glad we could beat them. And there is none of this, geez, that we have been at war. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, happiness uh, that, that we want. Right. Uh, but I think the generation now, uh, when they read a war story or something, it's got to be a totally different experience for them because they're, they're not used to black and white conflicts where somebody is going into a country to kill everybody else. 
uh, and you stop them. Now, now yeah. it's, it's so gray that it's more difficult for them to view things in the same terms. Yeah, I think you might be right because uh, it, you know, because I it was born in the '60s, so there we were still coming down, and we we announced when we went to the moon, and and we really believed in, hey, we can actually do stuff, you know, <laughs> right. we we can make it happen, you know. Uh, and then uh, you know had the you know Vietnam War, and you know that's the aftermath of that, and that I think changed uh, America in a way. We weren't yeah, so instant anymore. And, and not only that, but, uh, you know, a lot of the listeners might not remember, but we have hostages in uh, mm-hmm. Iran for 444 yeah. days. And we had a rescue mission where we had two helicopters blow up, blow up in the desert and kill everybody. And we were just kind of viewed as, you know, an empire that was done, done for a country that was like a paper tiger. And, you know, we weren't, not only the not the top country, but you know, right in the top twenty, and so I think that brought on a lot of moral relativism instead of us being viewed as the the place go to people go to be free. That we were just another country. Yeah, I think that's just said that uh, again. We lost our innocence. Yes, and that's yeah. what I try to regain through a lot of my books is that you know the people through the the reading. I don't, I don't leave a lot of doubt as to the good guy and the bad guy. There's complex characters and whatnot, but it's it's easy for people to know which side to root for. You know, uh, one's trying to kill off mankind, one's not. That type of thing. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot, a lot of not a gray areas. And like, oh, I don't know what I'm rooting for. Some of my short stories are more complicated that way, where you're really not sure until the end what's going on. But uh, the books, I think people want to read a book and they. They want to see that character arc, you know, uh, mm-hmm. where where the person, you know, you, you get to know them, you see them face challenges and either fail or overcome them and see what impact it has on the character. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, um, I see a lot of television. There's a few television shows out now where you're going like, okay, where are they going with this? Because, they're, you know, the characters aren't learning anything. There's no story arc. And you're going, okay, how long is this going to last? Because it's, it's, it can't possibly keep going the way it is. Uh, so that's not the way that you're supposed to be writing. <laughs> yeah, and then there starts being the crazy plots and the stolen plots from different books. And stuff. It gets really disappointing when people uh, do such, um, they do characters that don't change. And there's yeah. been some shows I really like uh, that they didn't give them the time. Because the science fiction in general is a lot more expensive to so, yeah, I'm a brown coat. I like the show Firefly. But it only went for one season and had the one movie. But it was just too expensive to sell and get a chance. So I really like the characters on that. But if you mm-hmm. take a show like Lost or Eureka, which I liked at first, I, I didn't even this last season of Eureka. I haven't watched any of it just because it, it's gotten so strange with all the multiple timelines and everything just, just to try to find a story. You know, I they happen to love that part. Where they made them into Christmas characters, <laughs> and you know, it, it's like really, you know, that's what you got left is to make them cartoons, you know. And you know, you this, see some pretty popular books weird. like yeah. Harry Potter, where mm-hmm. nobody in Harry Potter has any change in their personality in all the books. 
And and I'm not putting it down. I mean, I'd, I'd love to be J.K. Rowling and have a million dollars. And I, I think the stories are fun. But if you look at Harry Potter in the first book and you read him in the last book, he's the same exact person. The, the, the only one that really changes is Dudley, who at the beginning is an unsure, thundering <laughs> fool, and he's the one that ends up killing Voldemort with the sword, you know. So you've got one character out of, like, 30 that evolves. Yeah. And I guess we, we put up with it because in the movies, uh, they evolve. We see them getting older, so we think they're developing. And as kids, you know, it, it's obviously... Um, that's like childhood writ large, you know, instead of a bully being bad, mm-hmm. they can actually kill you. Or, you know, instead of your teacher being bad about homework, they can actually, you know, kill you. And so it, it's more about growing up and finding friendship and being the oddball and that type of thing. And so the, I think the audience that was reading it grew up with the books. And mm-hmm. so the character arc was actually the audience itself and not mm-hmm. the characters in the book. Oh, you know? so that's interesting, yeah. that. But when you're watching a TV show and every week you see it and it's exactly the same and you're the same, I, I think it just comes out more that, like, hey, that, nothing's happening with these characters. And, and we know that's just not realistic. People face, uh, you know, success. They just face failure. Right. Yeah. You know, weight gain, weight loss. You know, health gets good, health gets bad. And they have a character that just every episode shows up, you know, Berkey, for instance, um, like Eureka, like who would want to live in a town where every single episode of the town's going to explode at the last minute it's saved, you know? <laughs> it's it just like, you, uh, really, we've got 40 episodes in a row like that, you know? And it, it's just the cliche of the bomb where they disarm it with two seconds left, you know? Yeah, um, so I, I, happen, I happen to like um, Eureka because of the fact that it's, it's the what ifs. But you know, I happen to like time travel. So, but you know, I have to agree that this year, this year, this season, they've gotten really skewed, and and I don't know how in the world they're planning on bringing this back because it's uh, it's a little too far out there as far as I'm concerned. It's, yeah, and I like, had a DVR every season except for this one. But I think like I I think they should have just ended it last season. I think they ran up ideas, you know. So. Yeah. If they're gonna do it, then uh, you know, yeah, maybe a Christmas thing, warm and fuzzy at the end, and uh, but, you know, it's like it's like a book. If you don't really have a, a climax at the end, then what's you know, uh, where's the answers? And so they didn't give the answers at the end of last season, which is why they had to continue it. But um, yeah, even the great authors, like probably the best, in, in my opinion, the best uh, sci-fi novel ever is Dune by Frank Herbert. I mean, I know how hard... It, it's easy if you say if somebody goes to a hardware store because people know what hardware stores look like or you go to Home Depot. Well, he, he created an entire world, an entire mm-hmm. ethos. I mean, everything had to be created, which as an author is so hard. It's hard enough to get across your character and what, what's going on. But to create all of that, and Dune was just so good that everybody's like, okay, where's Dune 2 and where's Dune 3? And I gotta tell you, as you read through the future of Dune, you get into you know Dune with right, children and Dune and stuff. You, you start losing the whole I care about Dune at some point. Right, right. How much further can you go with it? After you know? that, you're like, you, you know, maybe, maybe it's a little bit tougher eating at this point. <laughs> there's, there's kind of like some movies should just have just ended in the first movie. Um, Dune is probably one of those. that's like you know. 
they said what they needed to say, and they sh- they shouldn't have bothered to do any more. I, I think I know for a fact that a lot of um, authors have told me that it's the publisher that you know forces them to do more books than they planned on. Yeah. So. And I've got in this one series, The Traveler's Club. I I do have five books. I've got them planned out. What happens and everything. And if people want more than five books at that point, um, there's some side stories and everything. But I kind of think that that tale will be told at that point. And I'm working on several other stories as well. I should have uh, Blood Bank out um, next spring. And that's kind of a post-apocalyptic vampire movie uh, type thing. But it's it's not sparkly vampires. I, I just can't do this. Hardly, any, hardly anything is directly vampire anymore, okay? <laughs> yeah, my, mine is actually, strangely enough, it starts with a human who's uh, middle-aged, you know, not heroic, you know, kind of like myself. And uh, he's a bookkeeper. Uh, huh? And he's a bookkeeper at a blood bank. And he's, as far as you <laughs> know, he's the only human alive. And he only talks to the vampires through a computer because they don't trust each other to keep track of the blood. So his whole life he's been raised by vampires not seeing anybody and keeping track of the blood for them and making blood transfers in and out between all the families. And he's known as blood keeper number 15. I mean a bookkeeper 15. And uh, they found out that earlier bookkeepers would go insane and so once in a while they drop uh, a human down there, the human that's been bitten and doesn't have any emotion. And so mm-hmm. at the start of this, he's ready for his human to be dropped out uh, for <laughs> entertainment. And it's a wild woman that's never been bit. So she's all young and wild. So the story explores her, a human that's lived completely wild as a human, never known civilization, uh, with this uh, you know, middle-aged guy. It's never known another human being uh, who's literally lived his entire life as a bookkeeper. Uh, And it shows just how bad the world is now that the vampires decided to take over instead of living in the sidelines. And so some of the vampires themselves start plotting to change things, and it gets pretty interesting. Uh, But it's more of a play on humanity, like what does it mean to be a human, you know? And it shows a human that's grown up without any humanity. Uh, meeting a human that's grown up with only humanity, uh, like on a very basic tribal basis, uh, mm-hmm. and then, you know, trying to deal with each other. So I think that one will be a little bit more cerebral than some of the other works. It uh, reminds me of uh, some Twilight Zone episodes that, that I've, I've seen. So perhaps you are kind of, your muse is drawing from some things you watched back then. Did you like Twilight Zone back then? Yeah, and, you know, I've, I've told my other authors that there is nothing new, that basically you're the sum of everything you've seen and heard, and you, you might not know you're dying from memories, but you are, and you're putting them in, in, in new forms. And I remember one particular Twilight Zone episode. Uh, it had Burgess Meredith. Yes, it was again. And he had these really thick glasses, and he loved to read. Yeah. And that's that's exactly the episode I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, and he, he hated it. He hated everything else, so... He would go down to the bank vault and read on his break. And one day the world was destroyed, you know, by nuclear weapons, which is a big thing back when we were growing up. Uh, and he comes out and he's so happy because there's no people to bother him and he can just read. And then he breaks his glasses. glasses yeah. <laughs> and so he's stuck. 
Yeah. All this time and all these books and no classes. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that, oh, is, that is one of the things is exploring, you know. you got to be, from, from everybody's standpoint, uh, this book will explore. you got to be careful what you want. Cause it really does show. I think that, you know, if you <laughs> yeah. trace the, the history of vampires back, when Bram Stoker was writing, he, he picked an Eastern European wealthy person um, going after the young daughters. Uh-huh. Because I hate to say it, but there's a lot of anti-Semitism back then about wealthy Jewish Eastern Europeans moving in. Um, and so they're kind of viewed as the villain. And over time, we've, we've changed the villains. And it wasn't until Lost Boys that they came with the vampires as being a good thing, you know, forever young, forever getting to party mm-hmm. and raise hell and going together as a family. Uh, and that's really culminated now. And this, oh, it's so romantic because you can be in love with each other forever and hang out, uh, and that you're all sparkly. And so mine's really a departure <laughs> from that. Mine's back to, okay, let's just say that the world is 99% vampires now. What kind of a world would that actually be? Uh, you know, they don't create anything. All they do is have a thirst for blood. I mean, what kind of lifestyle would that be? I because know. in all the vampire series, the only culture and enjoyment they get is by watching the humans. Hmm. You know, you never see vampires yeah. that are creating great music or literature. Uh, they're always at night going out to watch the humans. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's an interesting concept to say, well, let's say it was just vampires, you know, who's creating anything new, they don't have to repair anything. You know, it's just how boring that would be, you know, to live forever and not have anybody interesting to entertain you, you know. Yeah, I think that we've all kind of thought about that before. And that would be kind of a cool thing to, you know, be rich and and just, you know, live off the blood of everyone else. Um, right, but, but eventually you uh, you suffer from, and we, sure. the French call it, with just the, the overwhelming, crushing boredom of having the same thing happen <laughs> over and over. Uh, right. I mean, how many, yeah, um, I remember Highlander, and they discussed the fact that here, you know, you've lived all these systems, you know, centuries, and um, it, it gets boring, you know, after a certain amount of time. And exactly. you see, you know, the, the study of, okay, you're not human, you're immortal. Um, yeah. <laughs> you you lose some of your friends and you lose your, you know, lovers because they're, you're, they're not immortal. And uh, so you have to study that. That's interesting. Now, we were talking about uh, the fact that you're... Uh, a lot of fiction that we've read, and even uh, you know, even some of the playwrights back in history used to use. I mean, they were really actually going after uh, political views. And you just kind of sugarcoated it <laughs> behind the story. Um, you know, even Shakespeare wrote about his feelings about you know political views. Uh, we just saw it under you know with his. Place. Right. I and think so you have to put uh, in your political views, whether you do it intentionally or not. Uh, one of the books I'm actually waiting until after the election to put out, it's pretty much written, you know, a regular uh, book is about 100,000 words, you know, for a full novel. And I've mm-hmm. got about 80,000 on this, so it's, it's pretty much completed. 
but I'm just waiting for the election because it's based on 2024 and it's a political thriller here in the United States. Uh, so that one's uh, full of, uh, you know, what if and, um, you know, kind of uh, what happens if we don't deal with what's happening with our population and our political views in the country, what might happen. Right. And then I have a series of political thrillers uh, that I'm working on right now. Uh, in addition to that one, which is the Second Civil War, which is kind of an obvious title, <laughs> then uh, I have the Flames of Allah, which uh, uh, Jihad itself, the United States, uh, not to give away too much, uh, but you know it becomes pretty apparent in the book pretty early on that they have a plot to basically set a fire in the United States um, with flare guns and various other things. And if you've seen the damage of the fires in California in Texas that kind of deals with that kind of a plot. And then the third in the series is The Grand Dragon Rising, which would be a uh, geopolitical influence of China making its move to, to, to be a dominant power. So all, all three of those, I think, are pretty, unfortunately, likely scenarios for things that might happen. Mm-hmm, uh, yeah. And, you know, I'm somewhat hesitant sometimes to write... Uh, thing, especially about terrorism, because you don't want to give people ideas. Oh, yeah, you know? that's, that is a problem. Uh, and I, I, I also don't want to end up like the uh, the Dutch cartoonist who portrayed Muhammad and have a fatwa on my head or something over some fiction novel I wrote, you know. Um, <laughs> so you have to be really careful. One of the things I do is I research all the religions I write about, and I try to write as fairly as possible about each one of them. Um, anywhere from atheism to Christianity, so that a person reading it wouldn't be offended by what I wrote about the religion. I mean, it's important to to be accurate, you know. Right, definitely. Definitely. So I have quite a few things coming out, and then a few. Um, I, you know, I nobody who read Lord of the Rings and you know fantasy novels can't get into the Middle Ages. So one of the things I've just started is called in the name of the king. And it's set in 1493, and it starts off with a person who uh, works for the uh, King King uh, Ferdinand of Aragon and Queen Isabella Castile during the uh, uh, the Spanish Inquisition. Hmm. So the Spanish Inquisition is in a period of time where you you normally have any literature written about it other than you know the cliche Spanish Inquisition. So I thought I'd get into that period of time. Well, I, I really like mm. writing historical thrillers where you not only get the story and the characters, but you also feel like you visited Spain in 1493 or early in the earlier book. You know, you visit African 1880 or American 1880. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I, I love historical stuff too. So that's uh, obviously, definitely been influenced by maybe history and when you were going to school. Yeah, like history history <laughs> I, I maintain my own library on it. I'm, it's it's pretty sad now. Like I have this room in my house, I can throw it into a library, and I go to Barnes and Noble, and they have more history books than they do. You know, mm-hmm. and it, what's sad about that to me is there's there's so many cool things in history. When I was growing up, there's whole files just full of biographies about Napoleon and George Washington and you know, you could you could look at how one person in one lifespan 
could, mm-hmm. could impact things so much. And and that's always been really, I guess, important to me. It's, you know, why does one person grow up and, and they're a store clerk and they retire and they die and nobody cares? And, and why is another one, you know, like Alexander the Great by age 29, ruler of the world? Right. You know? What 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 are the choices that distinguish those two people? Yeah, well, that, that's where I feel like history and bio, and biographies in general are so important. But I don't, I don't think any people nowadays read them. You know, I think that's uh, you know we definitely get into people who um, have gone through wars. Uh, you're talking about Napoleon and and Wash, you know George Washington. Uh, both of them uh, were military leaders. Right. So there's going to have a lot of information on them because people seem to be interested in that kind of thing. It's, uh, you know, it's somebody that makes it obviously a, a definite uh, footmark or a foot you know, print in in time. And so uh, yeah, and for good or bad, about, you know, they right. influence the world for you know twenty, thirty years or hundreds of years through just ten, fifteen years of their life. Right. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me. Like, why, why this person? What What were the circumstances that made this person that person? You know? Definitely, definitely. Um, and, and it's what ifs that really, you know, intrigue us uh, fiction authors, I think. And, uh, and obviously you as well. Yeah, there's a project I've been thinking about working on. I don't know if people would like it or not. It would be a nonfiction, but just talking to, you know, self-made millionaires, you know. I had mm-hmm. the pleasure of meeting this guy. He died recently, unfortunately, but his name was Jim Deal. And uh, I was at a fundraiser for an event, and I was at his house, and I had my staff with me at the time. I was still doing consulting, and they said it looked like money had exploded in this place. And it's true. I mean, I actually had, like, people bringing it. There's you know, people, drivers, driving us down to his house, and it was huge, and there's artwork from all over, and maybe not well done, you know, <laughs> like expenses, but thrown together kind of crazy. So you know it was new money. So I just had to ask the guy, it's like, you know, where where all this money come from? Mm-hmm. And people are always wanting to talk about themselves. So he said, well, he had been a postman, and he had asked people, Hey, I don't want to be a postman all the time, so on his poster out, he would ask people what products he would like. So he came up with this idea for uh, spray vitamins. And huh. at first he was selling pepper spray, but he said he would sell pepper spray, and people that would keep it, they're supposed to replace it every six months, but he said he'd sell it once and they'd never come back. So he started right. out all these pepper spray containers, so he put vitamins in them. And he still wasn't making any money, but then people got all these uh, stomach bypasses. <laughs> and he said, do you, do you know what size the stomach is before and after one of these stomach bypasses? And I'm like, no. And he says, well, it starts off the size of a football and afterwards it's the size of a walnut. So people can't get enough vitamins and they can't take a vitamin pill because they won't digest because their stomach's too small. Right. So he said he was the only one approved by the Food and Drug Administration for spraying vitamins. Yeah. So Overnight, he went from a postman to having, like, 300,000 square feet of manufacturing. The guy was a super millionaire, you know. 
Yeah, so I know what you're, you're I, talking about. I find those types of stories just fascinating. Like, how, how did this happen? You know, you drive by a neighborhood, and it's got these million-dollar homes. I'm like, what What do these people do for a living that they're living like this, you know? Yeah. And, and I think there's a general assumption that, you know, it's old money, but not here in Phoenix. I mean, you drive through some really nice neighborhoods. Those are people that within their lifetime have gone from nothing to something. And I just think it's interesting. It's like, why? I mean, what happened? So I think about writing a book just on unknown millionaires, you know, not like the Donald yeah. Trumps or anything, but just the normal guy that, that hit it rich and, and how it happened. Yeah. And that's something we, we don't we don't get to hear about them very often. Right. Yeah, you know, and I think there's I think there's a feeling, you know, especially with, with the Occupy Wall Street right now and the ninety nine percent and the one percent. I think there's a lot of hating on the one percent. And, you know, before I, I decided to quit, I was like a one percenter myself. So I don't actually hate on them. I actually like people who were able to accomplish things. And, and most of the people I know in my life that have a lot of money started without any money. And they've just worked really, really hard to get it. Um, and, and not in, a, in any evil way either. So right. I guess I have a different view of rich people than, than most. I, I'm glad when people make it, you know, and I hope more people can. Um, and, and I know there's a group of Wall Streeters who do, you know, cheat others and, you know, just prosecute them and all. But, yeah, we don't we don't hear about just the normal people anymore. Again, you know, the heroes, just the normal guy who works hard and gets ahead and takes care of the family, you know. And it takes a risk, and there's a difference. So you're taking a risk. And, uh, yeah, you got to take a risk. And people say, well, you know, um, yeah, and sometimes it's, they take a risk and then they, they don't succeed the first time. I said, so come up with something else. You, you can't keep, yeah. you can't give it exactly. up. I know a guy yeah. that's got a lot of money. He's got a 6,000 square foot house. Uh, he's got millions of dollars and he's put it all on the line like seven times and bankrupted six times and the seventh time it worked, you know? <laughs> Right. So it, it, I, part of part of I think what what is unique to them is that they're risk takers. Right. You know. Yeah, you have and to be risk George Washington and some of our founding fathers were, you know, I don't know if you know how we have the Library of Congress. I mean, it's kind of a book related thing. But why Thomas Jefferson went bankrupt from his debts? Yeah. And while he was president, he had Congress buy his own book collection, so he could pay <laughs> off his debtors. And that's why we had the Library of Congress. So our founding fathers themselves were like risk takers that a lot of them ended up bankrupt. A lot of the signers of the Declaration of Independence ended up in debtor's prison because they weren't just risk takers politically, you know. They they were, right. you know, with their finances as well. And, you know, George Washington was one of the biggest ones, you know, where he had failed at several things. You know, he had, if he had been mm-hmm. a success earlier, he would have been a British general. Uh, but right. he actually helped start the French Indian War with the British by <laughs> trying to get a promotion. He started a, a fight of his own. So what I love about him is his character arc. He went from being this class being, you know, arrogant, doesn't care about anybody else, ambitious guy, to a person who was offered the kingship of the United States and stepped away from it. I mean, yeah. He's got the, the best character arc I know of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's so a whole new view of George Washington that, you know, I don't think that we have seen a whole lot of lately. 
Yeah, I mean, he when they were trying to discuss who would lead the Continental Army, he just happened to show up every day at the Continental Congress dressed in his old British colonel's uniform to remind them that he was the only one with military experience. There you go. And he, he was very much like Ross Perot, like, well, I won't run unless the people ask me to, but making sure that people did ask him to, you know. Right. And the war changed him. And, oh, yeah. you know, Valley of Ports and all the other things until he realized that it was more than just him. And he, he's probably one of my heroes just for that because he was such an unlikable person for <laughs> all the way into middle age. You know, he was the really grasping, doing everything he could to make money and get ahead, an ambitious guy. And at the end of his life, he became like the father of the country. And, and so everybody. Shows up to him. You know. Not to have the change for him to make him that way. And so, we're, you know, kind of like the characters. Yeah, it's story right. arc. You know, he learned something from, you know, something traumatic to happen to him. And, you know, it's like we're talking about the TV shows that were in original story arc. Something serious happened. We're going to say somebody's going to change. You know, that's just the way it is. And so. <laughs> They're not following yeah, general rules. One thing I refuse to have in any of my books, for instance, is somebody who is shot and shakes it off. And, you know, the next thing you know is fighting as if nothing happened. I'm sorry, but if you get shot, even if it's a flesh wound, that's a traumatic event. And you get shot in the 1880s, you lose the limb. That's not your life. But, your you body's know, I remember episodes from the 70s. Every episode you shot in the arm or leg, like it's no big deal. And it's the same with deaths now on TV. Like, oh, you know, this person's been around for two seasons, dies, and everybody's sad for 15 minutes, and the next episode they've forgotten about him. You know? Yeah, and yeah. It, it, it's almost like, I don't know, maybe it's just because a lot of the shows now have a staff of 30 or 40 writers, or, but, you know, the continuity doesn't seem to be there. Right. Yeah, you might be right about the numbers. The more fingers in it, the more complicated it becomes. And you're not keeping track of, you know, uh, that's one reason why I use the same editor over and over again, because she already knows the story. So, you know, why use a different editor where you're going to have to take them from the very beginning, otherwise you're going to get something wrong. Um, Not going to know your story. So, you know, it's the same thing with writers on these television shows. They don't know the story, so you uh, hear you get new writers, and all of a sudden they're going a different direction. Yeah, and especially genres are really important. You know, I, like I write in a genre because I love it, and I'm I met a charlatan at this at Phoenix Comic Con <laughs> this year, and I won't say who it was, but there's an author I've never seen before or heard of, and they're like, "Oh, I'm steampunk," and I'm like, "Really?" You know. I write steampunk, too. I'm part of the Arizona Steampunk Society. I go to all these events. I'm all into it. He says, yeah, my son told me I should write about it because it's popular right now. And I'm like, really? And he says, oh, yeah, I had to research three facts. And he told me what they were, and they were all wrong, you know. And I started quizzing the guy. He had no idea what steampunk is, you know. And there's there's this uh, song out that says put some gears on it and call it steampunk and everything, which is, which is kind of classic <laughs> on YouTube. But I felt offended that somebody was writing in an area that they don't care about. And and the real reason is somebody's going to read his book and think that's what steampunk is. And then all the people who really love it and care about it, they won't get to their book. You know? And there's, that reminds, there's things reminds... that I just don't like. Like, I'm not a romance writer, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if, if 99% of the money in the world was in writing romances, 
I would mm-hmm. not write one because I'm not a romance writer, you know. Right. And, you want to I just feel like, Yeah, I, want, <laughs> I wouldn't do it justice. I don't know the first thing about writing a romance, you know. And that, that I guess, bothers me more than anything else is when I meet a fellow writer who's not writing what they care about, but mm-hmm. they're just trying to make money off of a book. And I think those always turn out bad. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're going to be short-lived, or you would you would think it would be, um, depending on, on what they do. Uh, it reminds me of something that I had listened to, because I'm not sure if you know, but Ray Bradbury died today, actually in the middle of the night. So um, yeah, I listen to some of things, some things about him, and one of them is that uh, he said, don't worry about, you know, what's popular, because, you know, that's not what you are supposed to be writing. You need to write from your heart. Yeah, and I, I love Ray Bradbury's stories. I mean, with with him and uh, Isaac God Asimov, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I you know you John and Rogers at Lasney. I mean, they they were who I grew up with, you know. And right. the Martian Chronicles, you know, unfortunately, oh, it was never really yeah. done justice. You know, you have to read the book to really get that well. Um, and that's what I want to be. I've got these stories in me, and people said, "Well, why did you pick steampunk?" And I'm like. I didn't pick steampunk. I I have this story in my head. And, right. and all these stories I've talked about, they're in my head. I know what the story is. So when I'm writing, I'm really like dictating. And it makes it harder for me to write because I don't have the joy of creation when I'm typing because I already know the story. It's like I've read it and I'm just transcribing it, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's hard for me to understand an author saying, I'm going to write a book about such and such and, like, making that decision because it's, not, it's almost like writing from a prompt, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. It's like somebody says, okay, you start with this sentence. That seems like a creepy way to me to write. I mean, for me, it's like I already have the book memorized in my head what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, You know, and I want to write it because it's a cool story to me. And, and I yeah. hope other people read it. And so my goal is to get readers to read. It's not to make money. I mean, I, it'd be nice right. to break even but, you know, or even make some money. But the real thing is, I think it's a really cool story that I would want to read. So right. I know there's other people out there that would want to read it too. And Definitely. that's where I put all my effort in, really, is just, you know, hey, read it, you know. And... There's been some celebrities who I was just joking about the other day that they'll come up and I'm like, I'll give you a free copy because you're a celebrity, but only if you're going to read it. If you're just going to throw it in your hotel room trash, you know, that that breaks my heart, you know, to see a book right. unread, you know. Exactly. That's a uh, difference between an author and a writer. Um, I have people who say, well, yes, but what's the difference? Well, author is somebody who will just write something and put it up with no real, uh, you know, heart into it. Uh, a writer, on the other hand, is somebody who lives by their craft, who works it. And that means, you know, a little bit of blood and sweat, well, you know, doing editing, just taking your time to do it and and uh, going through the everything you need to go to. You need to to learn from your mistakes and grow. Just like a story. You know, you have to have story arc. Authors do the same thing. If we don't yeah, grow I've then so much better from the work I've put into just in the last year and 
um, I would really encourage other authors out there to go to real to go to a real writers groups where they do critique. And I'm in about six or seven different writer groups right now, and I, I seek out the ones that actually tell you that this part's crap. You know, this part's good. You know, I mean, right. if I've got a if I've got a problem with uh, oh, let's see what one of the problems. I've got this really odd problem where I'll use the same word four or five oh, yeah. times in a paragraph. That's it's never the a same lot of us, word. Believe it or not, a lot of us do that. <laughs> it's like for some reason I just get this word in my head and one time somebody pointed out I use the same word 14 times in one paragraph I think that's a record but if it was just the same word I would just like you know search for that word but it, it never is you know like bandage for some reason I think is a cool word for a paragraph and I'll use it four times so it's, it's things that you would you would never on your own as an author know because you just you read it and you fill it in the right way Right, but when you read you it aloud to it. other people, they're like, "Why did you use the word bandage five times in a row?" And I'm like, "Because wow, I'm I stupid. Did. That's why." And then you go back and you fix it, you know. And uh, every one of us has our little things like that, mm-hmm. you know. Definitely. And it really helps to be with a group that really knows what they're talking about, you know. And, and there's nothing I hate more as an author than I bring in a piece and I'm just like. Oh, that's just fabulous, you know. And I'm like, well, I'm glad you enjoyed hearing it, but you've done me no good. It doesn't do yeah. you any good. I know. I know. I I started with a uh, a critique group too, um, and so it really does help because again, just more eyes on it. Uh, they catch things that I'm never going to catch, and uh, that's just you know that really helps to build what you didn't know you were writing, and then learn from it. You know, change it, learn from it. Because uh, I have yeah. some authors that's like, you know, as soon as I'm done, as soon as I say the end, I'm I'm done. I want to hand off. No, no, yeah. that you just started, dude. <laughs> my, my favorite is uh, you were talking about how we have character arcs and we have arcs as writers. I wrote this book ten years ago. I mean, I've got like a hundred thousand words. It's it's mm-hmm. done, you know. And it's a science fiction piece, and it's a big space opera piece, like a Star Wars type thing. And it's got really cool creatures in action, and that's it. I mean, there's, like, no characters. <laughs> there's, pl- there's plenty of people in there, but, you you know, there's no character development. There's no, no nothing. It's it's just kind of just action scenes. You don't care what happens to anybody. And it's kind of a That sounds like a good screenplay. <laughs> yeah, because I read it now, and I'm like, I can't put this out. And somebody says, why, why don't you rewrite it? I'm like, I'd have to, re- like, rewrite it. I mean, completely. You got it out. It's, a, it's not even me. I don't even recognize it as my own writing. Like, I don't write like that anymore. And and no, so I think that, strange. you know, 10 years from now, I'm going to feel the same way about my first book. Like, I'm going to – there was a – it was rushed on the editing, and I don't like the cover. So I'm, when I come out with the uh, the second Trailers Club book in the summer, uh, mm-hmm. late summer, I'm going to have a second edition of the first book out. And mm-hmm. I'll discount that. And it's going to have a new cover, and I'm going to go through. And even though I paid an editor on the first one, I'm going to re-edit it um, and put that out. And maybe put in, um, you know, a free side story, too, for yeah, people. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I know that... It. Ten years from now, my writing's going to be better, but I want my writing now to to, to stand up the test of time as well. But it's kind of, it's kind of funny looking back at ten years ago what I wrote and mm-hmm. going, wow, I was just a terrible writer. 
I wouldn't know where to start now. Like I'm critiquing what I wrote. You know, I'd be like, dude, maybe you should consider a different career or something. You know, I mean, you know, you don't want to be mean, but it's like, no. you know, no. maybe writing class, you know, would be a good start, something like that. You know. But. I'm glad. I'm glad you say, and, I, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it anyway. I'm glad you say you're gonna change your cover. It's, uh, I, I think you could do uh, something more, uh, a lot more with it. Well, what yeah. happened is I had five different cover artists, uh, and they all bailed on me. And I yeah. was begging them. I, I was like, please, just tell me if you're going to do it or not so I can find somebody else. And I, I was paying for the cover art, you know. Wow. Uh, and I don't know if they get into it and it was harder than they thought or, you know, artists in general are kind of flaky about deadlines. I mean, I love artists, don't get me wrong. No, and, I understand what you Artist and deadline is almost an oxymoron, you know. <laughs> and finally, I had literally a table and a speaking engagement, and I had a book that was edited and ready to print and no cover. Oh, and my. so I went to a graphic artist that's a friend of mine that is not an artist. They're just, I mean, they literally do graphic stuff, putting pictures together. I'm like, hell, let's just pull some pictures off the web and, like, put them on there, um, you know, free pictures and have something for a cover so that I can right. sell this book. Yeah. And it, it's bad. So I've got a person right now doing this. One thing that, you know, you're hitting a a graphic designer here. So, (laughs) but the thing is, is that there's different. (laughs) You 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 have to bring elements together, and you can make them, you know, make them look a little more. I think your second book, um, you've got a lot more elements on it that that are really just out there, and and it's you know closer to what your book is about. Yeah, and the second yeah. book, the designer for that is the one that's going to be redoing my other books, doing them for me. Um, but, you know, that, that's one thing that new authors don't understand is, like, whether you have an agent, a publisher, or whatever, you you got to build a team. It's kind of like yeah. the driver yeah. at NASCAR. Uh, if you're nice. a driver and you don't have a pit crew or a car, you're screwed. So <laughs> now yeah. I've got an editor... I've got people who distribute. I've got, you know, people who critique. I have a person I can depend on for a cover. I mean, I the first book, I didn't have that. I didn't even know I needed that. And so I kind of rushed it, getting it together. Uh, but now I've learned so much that, you know, the future products like are going to be so much better. And well, just, they it's don't just understand. Like like, they, they think, oh, you write something... And you take that file and you stick it up on Amazon Kindle, and uh-huh. even even posting something electronically is a hell of a lot more difficult than people think it's going to be. I mean, yeah. It, yeah. It, it takes a day to get your stuff up on Kindle and Nook and make it look pretty. I mean, we had a problem with, you know, it was the three spaces between paragraphs and then one space and then no space. I mean, there's there's all sorts yeah. of formatting issues where you just want to gouge your eyes out, and you don't <laughs> learn until you've gone through the process. And I know my wife's always like, well, you rushed the first one. I'm like, well, even if I hadn't rushed it, it would have been bad just because I didn't have that team yet. And and now I do. So I just can't have that cover out there anymore. It's just not not good. And it discourages sales because people, when they read my book, they're like, wow, that book was really good. And they're surprised because of the cover. Um, (laughs) When when I'm like, 
I didn't you say know, I'm it. glad they like it, and I'm getting all five-star ratings, but they're like, I'm surprised your book was good. I'm like, yeah, I know, it's a cover, right? And they're like, yeah, you know. So I know it's a problem. And that's, what that's another thing that I would suggest to all writers is, you know, be humble right. and learn every day. You know, something if people tell you something sucks, it probably does, you know. Yeah, uh, I, I have people who say, well, how much do you charge? And I tell them, and they said, well, that's more money than I made on the first book. And I said, well, uh, and I'm looking at their cover going, well, uh, probably. <laughs> do you do yeah. realize how important the cover is, right? Uh, well, yeah. yeah, that I still can't spend that. I said, well, in that case, you know, I'm not going to go down in price because I know what I'm worth. So, right. uh, <laughs> you know. It's, it's, I've already downed where, I, I, you know, I, I really shouldn't be that low anyway. So there's like, oh, then there's shots. It's like, okay, well, hey, you know, um, again, I know what I'm I'm worth, and I know that how important a cover is, and I know what kind of work I put into it. So uh, it's a matter whether, you know, you want to sell your book or not. Well, I told people that uh, I was number 22,000 on the uh, Amazon list. Uh, after selling um, 22 books in one day. Uh, and so I said that, and there's like 1.3 million paid books. So mm-hmm. I said what that tells me is that there's like one, almost 1.3 million authors who had sold less than 22 books. Right. So I, I think people are really mixed up about the book market. If you're not oh, in yeah. the top 100, you're not making a living. And no. I think there's there's a proliferate proliferation of authors, which is good, but when they're just putting stuff up there exactly. um, that's not been edited, that's not good writing, I mean, some of it, it's just really bad, and I, I don't want to put down anybody else, but, like, you, you it makes your, you know, I bleed to read some of this stuff, and you just can't afford, like, you don't know what the characters are doing, you know what's going on, I mean, it's just that bad, it's not only not interesting, it's unreadable. And there's hundreds of thousands of those, and so it's it's hard to be a reader and say, how do I pick one that's not like that? How do I know right. that this person had an editor or whatever? And it gets, it gets down a lot to the cover. It's also the ratings. My ratings are good. Um, everybody that I trust is the writing is good, uh, but the cover sucks. So the cover's got to go. And so there'll be a second edition out this summer. Uh, because I don't want to promote the second book. And people go back and look at the first book and see that cover. Yeah, the, the thing is, as I found after I, I uh, you know, did my second and third book, that people are still going back to the first book because you know they they want they don't want to invest in all three books yet because they don't know right. you know who I am. So the first book, they still go back to it. They still like the cover. So it's like, you know, okay, good. Well, at least I did. I, I did what I needed yeah, to do I, with the cover. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 exactly true, and I want the I want the first cover all discounted down because th- this story is sequential. I mean, you can read them by the time you get to the fourth book. The fourth and the fifth book will not make any sense on their own, but the first three you could read on their own, and they would make sense. Mm-hmm. But they are in sequential order, and so it's it's better for a reader to read them in order anyway. Um, so I, I don't want anything to discourage people from reading the first book. Because um, it really sets up the two main characters. You know, you have a British lord that's to the manor born, and he's a really nice guy, but, you know, not practical. He lives in a laboratory and filthy rich. 
Um, but his friend is this um, poor ex-Confederate um, charge shooter. Uh, and so it's a lot like the recent Sherlock Holmes movies where you have the oh, yeah. Robert Downey, Downey Jr. and Jude Law, you have all the, the back and forth. Mm-hmm. I find that back and forth chatter more interesting than yeah, the slow motion bullets flying past them, you know? Yeah. And my book has got all that back and forth chatter. So I, I'd rat, you know, they're two best friends that annoy the hell out of each other on purpose because <laughs> uh, they're to- yeah. totally different people. And I think if people haven't read the first book, they won't really enjoy the next ones as much. Yeah. And so that means they definitely need to uh, get involved there and and read the first book first. I'm going to stop for a second here and let everybody know because I've noticed a lot of people just suddenly coming on here, and here we're we're already an hour, but I can go a little further. Uh, I can can see people coming on, and as I, I said, okay, where have you guys been? But um, your guest call-in number is 714-242-5145. Please, you know, you can, we definitely have a lot more to talk about as we haven't even gotten into his, his, his uh, writing habits yet. So I'm sure that was going to be interesting. So if anybody yeah. wants to have any other uh, questions, definitely, you know, call in and get and you know, talk to us. Or if you're just too shy, uh, definitely, put, uh, there's a chat right down below on on your uh, front page. There, you scroll down. There's a chat area, and that's where I wrote in. You know where how you get a hold of him on Facebook. It's on there, um, and I will also be adding some other things here at the end. But to let them know, I'm going to give him the, your your direct um, Amazon uh, location for your first book. Great. So, um, anyway, if you have, guys have questions and you just don't want to call in, that's fine. Just write in the chat and I'll definitely ask. So, again, that's 714-242-5145 or use the chat. And otherwise, I'm just going to keep asking him questions. And we're just talking here as if we were, we're just sitting by the fire and or in the air conditioning. That would be nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, it gets way too hot in Arizona, unfortunately. But what are you gonna do? You know. Yeah, yeah, we 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 live with it because you know the rest of the year is really nice, and uh, that's this you know August is just a killer. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we got. I'm gonna get into a little more of, of your style of, of writing because you're you're talking about. Um, multiple genres that you're writing that you're writing in, not only now but in the future. Yes. So, do you feel that that's going to hinder your sales in your first book being steampunk? You know, I I don't think so. Uh, I know that it used to be that way when you had a publisher, and it's mainly that the publisher wanted you know your name to be mm-hmm. on one shelf. You know, if you go to Barnes and Noble and you write sci-fi, you're on the sci-fi shelf, and mm-hmm. they don't want you also on the history shelf, and they don't want you over in the political shelf. They want everybody to see your books lined up, and that's just not the way it is online anymore. You know, uh, mm-hmm. mo- most of the book sales now are online, or I do them in person or in bookstores where they'll they'll clump my books together regardless of their genre. And so I don't think it'll be as big a challenge. I think some people just grow up um, with just one genre, but 
Mm-hmm. Uh, since I was 12, I've read a book a week, and I, I have a diverse interest, and I'll, I think a lot of people do. Um, and so I tend to write a lot of different genres. What, what it does affect is, is my style. Like, uh, if I'm writing a political thriller, um, I tend to write more in the style of Clancy, where I'll have more characters, and mm-hmm. there'll be short scenes, and then you're not sure exactly how they're going to come together. Uh, and then there's the reveals and the scenes coming together. Whereas when I'm writing uh, science fiction, and especially the steampunk series, I like to stay with uh, just a couple of characters, and they are the scene, so to speak. Wherever they go, that's where the story goes, mm-hmm. uh, and it revolves around them. And it makes it much easier because I think in an adventure novel, that you know, you want to be with Indiana Jones. You, yeah. you don't want to be off, you know, listening to the Germans make their plans for what they're going to do, you know. Uh, you want to be with him. And that's how I am in the adventure series. But when you get into some of the more complicated political pieces, I actually use a device called Scrivener uh, that helps you sort your scenes and whatnot. Because then it gets a little bit more difficult. You need to keep track of, you know, are you bringing your characters enough that people remember them, that they're familiar with their subplots going on and whatnot. Uh, where the adventure is very easy to write. Um, it, Like I said, I can just sit down and write it. And I, I knew I was a prolific writer, but I didn't know how much until I, I read Stephen King's on writing. Mm-hmm. And I've always joked about Stephen King being a word processor. I actually write 2,000 words per day more than Stephen King. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess I, I write pretty quick. Uh, yeah. I, I write at least a chapter a day. Um so uh, a book is, is normally 40, 40 chapters as a whole book, but I, I can easily turn out three or four books a year along with short stories. And, and you know, you've published some of my nonfiction, and my nonfiction uh, is actually much more difficult for me to write. Even though I have a mm. strong science background and my whole career I've written nonfiction, you know, for my workplace, mm-hmm. I don't enjoy it as much, I guess. Right. I, it, yeah. There's not the creativity of... You know, you published a thing I did on dark matter and uh, a lot of stem cell research and whatnot. Uh, and it's just not as interesting, I guess, to me as creating a character and doing an art. Well, it's something you're falling in love with. Right. You know, and so, you know, I do find, though, that uh, kind of like you, you were also writing for uh, the newspaper, uh, connotations and, and you're getting into more science but you also put your fiction in there so right. that way people will know you for more than just your science articles but the thing is that by putting nonfiction, by writing nonfiction, you put it in the forefront of your fiction people read more often will read the nonfiction. fiction there just more readers of nonfiction. that's a that's a lot of laws of books you know it's a shame but that's the way it is, that's the way it is. So you know, it's interesting you bring that up. People think that it's like James Patterson and stuff, that that's the way to go, but the, the real money is in, like, how-to gardening books and, mm-hmm. you know, how to fix your sink. And, you know, it's really the nonfiction that dominates the market right now. Yes, it is. Uh, and I don't think people realize that. But, I know, didn't realize. You, I, yeah, you and I were, were probably fiction readers, and... Right. Uh, the thing is that fiction readers are shocked to hear this. <laughs> yeah, like, I, 
the market the is dominant. Are all fiction <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you go there, there's like no, there the nonfiction writers show the the I write nonfiction. I'm like, well, you might not know it, but you're like ninety percent of the market. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and they, you know, if you're, you're having trouble uh, selling your your nonfiction, then you're doing it wrong. You know, <laughs> so, yeah. I have people come to, you know, come to me now. It's like, it's like, well, I only sold nine of my nine of my books. And I said, well, we got to change that. <laughs> you know, definitely something going on where uh, you know you're just not getting in front of the people that that's going to read your stuff. So, because exactly. uh, honestly, fiction uh, fiction's a lot harder to sell. As uh, there's just not as many readers of fiction. It's hard to believe considering. Yeah, my friends are fiction fiction readers, but then again, you know, like-minded people kind of hang out together. Well, it kind of shocked me when I when I saw the numbers, but you know, when you think about it, it's like my wife's a fiction reader, but she's probably bought more non-fiction books in her life. Yeah, she told me that. Because you know, if you're if you're gardening or you're doing whatever, you know, you buy a book on now too, and you don't realize how many of those you're buying. Right. Um, you know, like you know, the dummy's guide to this, or the dummy's guide to that. You know those. And I know some um, local authors, if that's all they do, is they're behind the scenes, they don't even their name on it. It's mm-hmm. kind of like writing technical manuals and stuff for, for software. And they've got steady employment, I'll tell you that, you know. Right. Uh, but, yeah, I, I don't enjoy the nonfiction as much, you know. Uh, I think it's fun uh, to inform people about science that, you know, they, they hear the words, they don't really know what the background is. But I just don't do that so much. Yeah, and uh, you know, I usually suggest is is trying to find some kind of nonfiction to go in front of your fiction, and they say, "Well, we have about what?" I say, "Well, what did you do?" Because you're talking about research. Um, Lynn Boston and I talked about that in this interview yesterday. How much you have to research in order to do writing? Because you know, so many nonfiction authors as well as you know uh, readers think, "Oh, well, you just make up the story." Says you don't do any research. Well, that's not true. <laughs> yeah, guys, I did a uh, panel at Leprechaun, as you know, on, on doing research. And since mm-hmm. uh, this book, for instance, is in 1880, uh, you, you just, you know, I know the, <laughs> when the light bulb was uh, invented, but, you know, did people have them yet? You know? Uh, right. What were they using? You know, like, uh, one interesting thing we found out is the Pony Express only existed for a few months and went bankrupt. You know, as a kid, you hear about Pony Express, you think they went off for years, but they hardly existed, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you do this research, uh, you find out really interesting things. Like the second book ends up in uh, Phoenix. There were only 1,600 people in Phoenix in 1880. Uh, yeah. But you have to research everything. Like uh, a lot of my first book is in Morocco, for instance. Well, I can't afford, as old authors would, to drive, you know, to go over to Morocco and live there for three or four months. I need to know what the temperature on Mount Taupal is uh, in September, you know. Well, you go to the web. Uh, You can go to Google Atlas and, you know, Google Earth, and you can see the trail. So you can actually describe the trail. There's all mm-hmm. these people that will take their video cameras and actually drive along the coastline of Morocco. And so you can see what that particular area of Morocco looks like. And mm-hmm. then you do a lot of research. Like I found one was a 512-page diary of somebody who had visited Morocco and traveled all over uh, Morocco in 1880. 
and I, I read that entire thing. Now, it's 512 pages, but I probably used two pages of it. Mm-hmm. But it gave me so much feel. For the, yeah. Like, I didn't know that they didn't believe in wheeled vehicles then in Morocco. So you couldn't find yeah. no vehicles with wheels. And there's just very interesting things that you find. The problem I ran into is I do so much research. Like, one of my second book, there's like a half a chapter where they're in St. Louis in 1880. And I probably spent two weeks researching St. Louis in 1880. And it's just fascinating, the things that you find out. And you want to put them in your book, but they have nothing to do with your book. You know? yeah. Like, like, so you're like, okay, let's put the characters and the story on hold. And let me just tell me all the cool things I learned about St. Louis in 1880. So that's, yeah. that's kind of the problem that I have as a re- researcher is, you find a cool fact that you want to share it with people, but it doesn't really fit the book. So you you end up, you know, you take it to your writer's group, and they're like, you know, you just showing off talking about this. And it's like, yeah, it has nothing to do with the book. And you cut out some really cool things that you learned. But, you know, yeah. uh, luckily a lot of steampunk people want to learn about it, so I can put a little mm-hmm. bit in. But if you don't think it matters, man, there's certain things you cannot get wrong. Like my lead character is the Sharps Rifle that he got during the Civil War. And he's modified it several times. I I had 30 emails back and forth about wh- whether the barrel should be 33 inches or 36 inches. You know, <laughs> I mean, people, like, are into sharp rifles, and they want to mm-hmm. get it right, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, you know, the fact that I've got uh, ray guns in there, that I don't explain at all how they work, that, you know, this is a flashlight comes out and burns things, that's fine. But if you're three inches off on the rifle of the Sharps rifle, you'll never hear it. Oh, yeah. Anything. Oh, so yeah. You, part, you really do have to do a lot of research. And I I took the position, one of the other writers there was offended, but if, if you don't know a topic, just don't write about it, you know? Like, if you want to write science fiction and you've never taken a science class, just go to one of these books store sales and buy the old textbooks for 25 cents a piece, you know, and mm-hmm. at least learn basic things, you know, like sound doesn't travel in space, it doesn't have a wave, you know. I mean, you, and, if, and if you're not interested in learning that, then you're probably not going to be a good science fiction writer because science fiction readers like that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, write, so I'm always about writing about something you enjoy, and if you don't enjoy science enough to learn it, then you probably won't write it well enough for people to enjoy it either. So I, I love history so much that it's I like writing historical pieces that that you just have to get the research right. Oh, definitely. So you did a lot of research when you were working on it. Could you possibly yeah. <coughs> pull together some of that and actually write articles, or have you? You know, I hadn't thought about that, but I, I probably spent two or three times as much time researching as I did actually writing. Yeah. Because the story comes easy to me. But, you know, somebody asked me a question at a convention. They said, you know, what what if you had somebody eating lunch in Japan in 1880 and you wanted to know what type of cheese they had in Japan? And I said, at that point, I'd probably just have them eat lunch. You know, I don't think I would force myself to find out what type of cheese. I don't even know if they eat cheese in Japan in 1880. So part of it is, you, you know, you can just run amok with your research and fall away from your writing and just forget it even while you're doing it. 
Yeah, and that's how I get it done. <laughs> yeah, unless there's something particularly important about that lunch in the book, I don't really need to know what they're eating. You know what I mean? No. Um, so yeah, that's that's part of it on your on your research. It's really important. Is like you know, don't lose track of what what you're trying to do. I mean, you want to set the scene, you want to move the story forward, but unless the person, like, if the main character, like, really cares about food, then you know. You're stuck with researching food, but uh, <laughs> some of those things are just impossible to find. You know, especially, you know, there was um, there was a press that says, "Well, why don't more people write about you know strange places like Japan in 1600 or you know Afghanistan in 1900?" It's like because there's no books or research for it. I mean, we have a lot of stuff in Western Europe written down, but um, there's there's whole periods of time where you just cannot research a certain area. You have to make it up, you know. But right. to the extent possible, I, I find out everything I can about a period. Definitely. Definitely. I, I love India area, so it's uh, that's not something that a whole lot of uh, writers who write any kind of romance at all even write in. So when I started yeah. writing that, it's like, I have people, uh, you know, uh, publishers and, and others say, no, you can't get into that because, you know, the, we only accept English or American uh, romances. So, well, in that case, my book's not for you. Huh. Yeah. And I'm going to change my area just because, you know, you guys don't want to have a story from India. But then, you know, a few years later, everybody in there, everybody is talking about India. And this, you have Indians, Indians in almost every television show. And it's like, yeah, okay. It's, <laughs> it's really cyclical, I think. You know, and I, I don't think you can predict the curve. Like, I know a lot of fellow authors that are trying to write YA. And, you know, I'll be honest about my age. I'm, you know, 48. And I don't really know what the club scene is right now in Phoenix, you know. Uh, I don't. I don't go clubbing and drinking. I'm married 27 years. I just so for me to write something about you know 20 somethings here in Phoenix and throwing vampires and stuff just to try to make money. I I just don't think it would come across right because I don't know the topic, you know. And right. So I I tend to write what I know, whether it's popular right now or not. And you know my my experience has been the same as yours. You know things are popular. At one point, and usually the bandwagon people, I think by the time these writers finish their YA book, that the YA craze will be gone, and it'll be something else, and who knows what it'll be next. Exactly. Like, That's why I tell people, don't worry about what it is, what's popular now, because I've, I've you know, been told uh, years ago that by the time you get done with your book, and actually it would be a year behind the times. So... <laughs> Yeah, and once you read Lord of the Rings, you don't want to read a knockoff of Lord of the Rings anyway. I mean, that's that's the other thing the published shows don't get. Oh, hey, everybody likes Lord of the Rings. Let, let's do a bunch of Lord of the Rings stuff. It's like, no, because then it's just a knockoff, and people know it's a knockoff. I mean, I think you're always better doing an original piece than trying to be, like, something that's already popular. You know? Yeah, yeah. Be be the first on something, Um yeah, you know, don't don't have, be worried about not. I, I find it says, well, what genre is it? Well, you know, it, it's several. It says, right. you know, and nowadays we don't write just one genre anymore <laughs> because that's not what readers want to read anyway, and that's not what I want to. That's not what I want to write. 
Yeah, it used to, and it used to be because they thought like a bookstore. It's like what shelf am I going to? Yeah, where, exactly. What and shelf I, they put And I want to put all your work on the same shelf, and it's like, you know, yeah. that, I'm not, I'm not that particular type of writer where it's all on one shelf on a computer, you know. <laughs> and I, I don't see there being large bookstores like Barnes and Nobles, you know, for much longer. I mean. I, I see a time where when I'm an old person, you know, hopefully I will live long enough to see this, but, you know, kids will have, like, a piece of cellophane in their pocket, and that'll be a computer. And they'll laugh. They're like, you, you used to actually carry around, like, 10-pound books to school with you, you know? Like, you carry around, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, piles yeah. of paper? Why, you know? It's like I got this little thing here that has the entire library owners on it, you know? So I, I think that, you know, people, Publishers in general are, are towards the change. Like, it doesn't matter anymore what genre it is because you're not going to be selling it in, you know, uh, orders because it's gone. And, you know, Barnes <laughs> & yeah. Noble is not going to last much longer either. It's not like I see big lines there. I see a big store, but not a lot of customers, you know. Well, and then most people would say, well, you know, I go to Barnes & Noble just to look at the book and find what I want to read, and then I go and buy it online. Wow. Uh, well, they're not going to stay in business as long as they're you know, if you're doing that, but you know, if this again, Barnes and Noble is going to wind up staying online. Um, well, the thing that bothers me about Barnes and Noble now too is just the whole cycle. I mean, it's, it's the same thing that's happened to the movie industry. Um, the movie industry much. used to release on like 500 screens, and your movie would be out for six years. And if people liked it, you'd make money. Now mm-hmm. all the money's in the trailer. They make this trailer to get you in, and they don't even care if you like the movie. It's basically, can we recoup our money in the first week or or second weekend before people find out the story sucks? And with books, they put the books on the shelf, and I see brand new books from like big authors, you know, mm-hmm. that are just on this big uh, table, a discount pay- table, like fifty percent off. And yeah. Like two weeks after the book's out. Yeah. And I'm like, why, why don't I want to compete in that market? I'm like, well, I'm a small author. And and I see other authors that write science fiction. It's like, oh, they have one copy of their book low on this one shelf in a darker spot in Barnes & Noble. It's like, how many people are going to be buying that book, you know? So I, I just think that's the way of the past, you know, that the small bookstores are better, too, because you still have people running who care about reading. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had the experience recently of talking to somebody at a big, big bookstore, and you say, "Hey, you know, I'm looking for this book. Do you, do you know anything else like it?" And they just stare at you. It's like, I wonder yeah. if they've even read a book. You know, they look <laughs> it up in the computer, and if it's they not look up there, the computer like, and say, "Okay, yeah, well, I could have done that." You know. Yeah, and it, and it used <laughs> to be like, "Oh, if you like this person, you know, let me show you this other guy. You're gonna like these too." You know, and that's what made bookstores special. You know, yeah, anybody. Exactly. You know, if I have to look on a computer at Barnes and Noble, I can look at a computer in my my home, my home, a lot easier. You know. Exactly, and that, and that's the difference is, uh, you're finding a, a smaller. Okay, I'm looking for your stuff here. I finally found it. Um, you know, finding uh smaller bookstores that still really love the craft, you know, and really love books and not just be a real estate. You know, because really Barnes & Noble is, is a real estate agent. <laughs> yeah, and one of the things I've been doing, too, is I'm I'm selling it non-bookstores. 
Like, if I write a book that's science fiction, why not sell it at uh, comic book shops? Yeah. So yeah. I've got, you know, several gaming places and comic book shops and stuff that carry my book. And, and you know, I tell them, it's like, hey, you know, I actually give them, a lot of these comic book places only get like a 5 or 10% margin. So they make a lot more money off selling my novels than they do off of selling a comic book. Um, and I'm like, yeah, I'll put them up there, and, you know, if they sell, they sell, and if they don't, they don't. But it's people who would be interested in it. So then right. I'm maybe one of four books in that whole store. Uh, but it's appropriate to the people walking into the store. Whereas right. if I'm at Barnes & Noble with 20,000 books, who knows? Yeah, exactly. For my books, you know. That's like going to Amazon. <laughs> It's, yeah. uh, you can't find anything, you know. It's it's like being a needle in the haystack. There's way yeah, too many so books. It's I think that if I don't know what it is, but there's going to be some method somebody comes up with to sort through those 1.3 million books, uh, so people can find them. Somebody somebody's going to come with some way of doing it, um, and and help uh, people out, you know. Uh, and I don't know if that's the blog community or or what it's going to be, but at some point uh, people will just get tired of looking at a million titles. You, you just, it's just too much. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I'm gonna. If we're getting close to the end here. I want you to tell people how to get a hold of you, other than Facebook. How how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, my name is Michael Bradley, and that's my real name. Uh, and so I put my real name behind my work. And I have a blog site, uh, and it's, I, I think it's hilarious because it's a funny things on there, but you might not think they're as funny. But uh, it's MB, like Michael Bradley, uh, Time Traveler. So MB Time Traveler, all one word, uh, at, dot WordPress, I mean at WordPress.com. So WordPress is W-O-R-D-P-R-E-S-S.com. That's MB Time Traveler uh, at WordPress.com. And then if you get to that site, you can, I also have my uh, email on there, so you can email me as well. And that email is Ibernest at Cox.net, and it's spelled with an E. So it's E-I-V, like Edward India Victor, E-R-N-E-S-S at Cox.net. And I and I love it when people uh, log on my site or send me an email and if you have any questions or anything. Um, that's very very helpful to me. I enjoy it immensely. There you go. So everyone, you know how to get a hold of him. And again, he is obviously on Amazon, so you can look up his book. And tell us the book title again. Uh, it's Michael Bradley is the author, and it's The Traveler's Club and the Ghost Ship. And there is also a contest here we put together anonymously for uh, alternative history stories. And I'm happy to say that five of the 12 selected were mine. And so I've got five stories in Twisted History. Um, so the first book is Traveler's Club and the Ghost Ship. Uh, the second is Twisted History. And I spell Traveler's Club the American way, so there's only one L. I didn't have an English person who said, <laughs> yeah, I said two yeah. L's, and I'm like, in Britain there's two L's, but in America there's one, so I just went with one. Yeah. 
I I was uh, editing somebody from Canada, and uh, as, as I had to a habit, a nasty habit of, of Americanizing her text, so I had to stop myself from doing that. <laughs> yeah, we have a per- an author that's from Canada, and she doesn't realize how many of her words are Canadian. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes we'll we'll just say really, <laughs> and she's like, "Well, what are you looking at?" And we're like, "Never mind," you know. <laughs> Is we're looking on Amazon, and the funny thing is, you, there's a Michael Bradley that writes uh, a information about a lot of different cars. That's funny. Oh, Jeep yeah. and yeah, Camaro and Mustang and all these cars, and going, oh, that's cool. Not the right Michael Bradley, everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's actually quite a few Michael Bradleys. I'm sure they're all wonderful people, but the uh, the one you want is the Traveler's Club and the Ghost Ship. Yeah. And I'm going to give that to them, and we are in the last minute, so I'm going to ask you a question. The last question that I usually ask everyone who I have uh, on for my first time, and that is, now that you've successfully slain the dragon, how would you celebrate Well, that's a good idea. Uh, you just slay the dragon. You always got to have the celebration. So for me, it's usually uh, having friends together and hanging out. Uh, you know, just adult beverages and games and and uh, low key. I'm a low key celebrator. There you go. See, everybody has a different uh, a different answer, and kind of funny. I had one author who I talked to uh, later, but three months later, she had a different answer the second time. So, <laughs> well, that's interesting. you never, never know. <laughs> well, I really so appreciate this opportunity. Thank you so much, Patty, for having me on. You're welcome. I'll be giving you the code for this so you can put it up online. Uh, it, it takes about it takes an hour or two for me to get the then to change over, so that way the code will be uh, embedded. Okay? Great. That sounds great. Thank you, and thank you for coming on, and everyone, I will be seeing you tomorrow. Same time, same same channels, so that'll be uh, 5.30 to 6.30 tomorrow. And with KY Radio, this is Patty Holstrian signing out.